0: All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Knicks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. Welcome to it. What day is it? What's the date? January 8th. Man, this year is ripping by. It's been a week. It's just ripping by. It's just screaming by this year. So today on the show, Joel Edgerton. This guy's one of the best just one of the best actors. I was. I recently uh, watched Black Mass like a few times on HBO, and uh, and and we'd been talking about it, how good he is in it. And then and then he got I got an opportunity to have him on. I was like, fuck yeah, fuck yeah, I'll have him on. He's also been in The Great Gatsby. He's been in Animal Kingdom, The Underground Railroad, Master Gardener. He directed the films The Gift and Boy Erased and he was in that one I like. What was that one called? Was it the was it The Stranger? That Al- that Australian film? That thing is crazy. Like I knew I was going to talk to him and I just I I'd seen coming attractions for I didn't know what it was. The Stranger, Australian crime drama based on a true story. And it is the most menacing movie I've ever seen. The acting is beyond anything I can even understand. I mean, Joel's amazing, but that other guy, I got to talk to him about it. I'm going to talk to him about it. I know I did that. I don't even know why I'm playing that trick with you. I already talked to him about it. How was I not going to talk to him about it? That guy, Sean Harris, in that movie is beyond. I mean, it's it's like up there, if not better in terms of psychotics than uh, – Anthony Hopkins in Silence of the Lambs. Somehow it reminded me a little of that. There was some part in it. Or no, maybe it was like Ted Levine. Is that the guy's name? The guy who played the killer in Silence of the Lambs. He puts it in the basket. That guy. I don't know, man, but Sean Harrison, the stranger, and Joel Edgerton. Whatever, man. I watched it and it blew my mind. I also watched The Boys in the Boat. Which is uh, the new one directed by George Clooney that he's in. But I just always am kind of awed by this guy. These Australians, man. Something in the water down there. Some of the actors down there are just fucking transcendent. I'm at Largo in Los Angeles tomorrow, Tuesday, January 9th. San Diego, I'm at the Observatory North Park on Saturday, January 27th for two shows. San Francisco at the Castro Theater on Saturday, February 3rd. Portland, Maine, I'm at the State Theater on Thursday, March 7th. Medford, Massachusetts, outside Boston at the Chevalier Theater on Friday, March 8th. Providence, Rhode Island at the Strand Theater on Saturday, March 9th. Terrytown, New York at the Terrytown Music Hall on Sunday, March 10th. Atlanta, Georgia, I'm at the Buckhead Theater on Friday, March 22nd. Madison, Wisconsin at the Barrymore Theater on Wednesday, April 3rd. Milwaukee, Wisconsin at the Turner Hall Ballroom on Thursday, April 4th. Chicago at the Vic Theater on Friday, April 5th. And Minneapolis, I'm at the Pantages Theater on Saturday, April 6th. You can go to wtfpod.com slash tour for tickets. Um, yeah, man, it's been a little crazy. Like I've been obviously on the edge of it. I'm going to the doctor today. Because, you know, I had to, I fucking spiraled out, hit the wall with the nicotine. Again, these patterns, totally predictable and totally predictable how I'm going to handle them, but I'm not getting any younger, you know, I just get to a point where it just becomes clear as fucking day, you know, what addiction looks like in any capacity, you know, if you have it, you have it. And if you don't have it for one thing, you have it for another. And if you quit one thing, it'll find its way somewhere else. Now, look, my life isn't unmanageable, really, because of whatever compulsions I have. But the nicotine was getting crazy, and it just gets to a point with that shit. You know, you, it's amazing what your brain will do to rationalize the addictive brain. Like, hey, I heard it. You know, nicotine's kind of good for your brain. It's like the way, it's like an alcoholic with like, I heard a glass of red wine a day is is probably good for you. Cut to two weeks later, a bottle and a half, two bottles of red wine a day. Still believing it's good for you. Hey, nicotine's good for my brain. You're sweating, dude. And you're, you know, you, you, you fall, you're taking weird, nauseous naps. You're falling asleep with a nicotine lozenge in your mouth, which you could choke on. Or a pouch. And you've been through this before, dude. Talking to myself here. Not to anyone in particular, but to me. So I had to pull myself off it. Got off the coffee, which is what I do. Got on a fairly strong Irish tea, which arguably a more powerful buzz than coffee. Different, dude. Different. The Irish tea with the Assam in the morning. Two cups of that. And my brain is on fucking fire on top of the withdrawal, which is not physical anymore, but mental. Because, you know, that the mental thing is like you you get locked into this sort of like, God, when I get up, I'm going to have a coffee. I'm going to fucking do some nicotine. I'm going to start the day all fucking, you know, kind of humming, man. And then you take that away and you wake up and you're like, oh, I'm going to, I can't. Damn it. All right. This is better. This is better. Whatever this tone is, this is better. I feel better. It's just, you know, you, you, it, it's just sort of you, you, it's just the dam breaks. You know what I mean? You, whenever you self-medicate with whatever it is, even if it's exercise or food, whatever it is, when you pull it out, when you, when, you, when you stop it, then the fucking dam breaks. And everything that you've been keeping at bay emotionally, it's it comes right up. And then you got to decide what to do with it. It's been kind of fiery on stage, though. I kind of broke through the other night. I got It's weird because I'll do these longer shows at these smaller venues and I'll get all raw and vulnerable and cry. You know, I'm, you know I cry now. Like I just cry sometimes. I tried to resolve a, a, a rift with an, an old buddy who was mad at me for whatever fucking reason, and we didn't resolve it. But, you know, in, in trying to resolve it, I choked up. And I felt bad about it. I walked away from it like, you fucking idiot. Why'd you get all choked up? Dude, it's okay, man. You know, hurt feelings are hurt feelings, right? You can't fucking... I can... But, you know, like, it's so... I don't know what your impulse is, but, you know, hurt feelings or... You know, I can turn hurt feelings into fucking spite pretty fucking quick. Just, you know, run it through the mill. What are you going to do with this sadness? I don't know. Lash out at my television? You know, like, cause there's part of me that wants to check out people just check out. I'm not saying of life, but out of the fucking, you you know, the, the, the hamster wheel of being a mid-level public person feeling like I have to do this comedy that I'm doing because it's important for whatever reason. It's funny, but like, I need to say my piece and express myself. I'm fucking tired, man. And this year is going to be a fucking clusterfuck. It's going to break me the fuck apart. I can already feel it. Happy New Year, I mean. What was I saying? Cats are okay. Charlie Beans Roscoe. Full-fledged kitten asshole. But also sweet guy. Buster. Buster the booster. Sweet guy. Sammy. Sammy's coming around. Sammy. Smushy. The smusher. Shmooley. Sam. The cat. The orange tabby has now become a sort of self-owning weirdo. Before he was just like antisocial and a little unto himself. Now, full-on fucking whack job. Great cat. Might be the best one in his own way. You know what I mean? It's the geniuses that you're uncomfortable with initially and then you're like, this this guy's got a thing. He's got a thing, this guy. All right, Joel Edgerton. I was uh, honored to talk to this guy. Uh, because I think he's a great actor the movie that he's currently in the boys in the boat directed by George Clooney is currently in theaters but he's been man watch the stranger Whew. wow wow black mass too much better movie than I thought it was and I thought it was pretty good the first time but I've watched it like five times now watching a lot of movies anyway this is me talking to Joel Edgerton
1: The man, what a great villain! He, I remember when uh, he did uh, in the line of was it in the line of fire? Oh yeah, with the uh, with the plastic gun, the Queen Eastwood one. Yeah, and when he knocks on the ladies' doors and he sort of charms his way in, and it's it's one of those villain performances where you actually go, he actually he actually terrifies me. Yeah. Rather than I know the film is telling me that I should be scared of this person.
0: Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. You no, know? he he can lock into uh, the scary.
1: Yeah. Well, you do all right with that. Yeah, a little bit. I think there's people that do it naturally so well, though. Just creepy people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You'd hate to say to them, yeah, we're casting you because you actually scare me in real life.
0: Well, that happens. That's got to happen all the time.
1: Yeah. We did it in a movie. Which one? Um, oh, The Gift? No, in uh, The Stranger, which we made in Australia during, I guess, during COVID. Dude, what, you, what the fuck is that movie? What do you mean? Well, I mean,
0: I just watched it. <laughs>
1: but I mean, Sean Harris, man, Sean Harris, that he's was got a vibration that dude, is actually terrifying. That was fucking crazy.
0: Mm. It's crazy mm. that movie. I I watched it. Cause I watched. I mean, I've seen a lot of your movies over the years, but you know, I watched a new one, and then I saw the. Uh, you, you know, I saw that The Stranger had come out. Mm. But I didn't know what how, you know. You never know how to register anything. You know, you you look at a trailer, it comes by. I'm like, I don't know what that is. You yeah, know, yeah. and then I'm like, well, just watch it. I didn't know. If, I didn't know if it was a miniseries or a movie. So I watched it, and uh, it seems to me, like I was going to ask you about it, though, I, I mean, I mean that's a. It feels like a risky bit of business as an actor. In what way? Well, into you know, put yourself into a character that is pretending to be somebody else. Yeah. Even though he's a cop, it's yeah. a difficult situation, and you know that vibration that's coming off of Sean Harris is menacing. You know, and and it's just you guys. I mean, it's an actor's movie.
1: Yeah, well, it was one of the first times I'd ever sort of shepherded a pro, apart from stuff I'd written, shepherded a project from from a book stage, read a book. Is it nonfiction? No, yeah, it's nonfiction. Right. It it started as a news story that I had read about how they caught this killer. Right, 10 years after the fact. And I think it was such a big case in Australia that. So you optioned the book?: Yeah, I, I, I went looking for the option for the book, and someone else had it, and I, I waited, crossing my fingers that they wouldn't do anything with it, and, and waited a whole year, finally got a hold of it. How long ago
0: was that? What was that how long was that process?
1: Uh, the whole process from, from getting the like getting my hands on the book to making the film was about yeah. two and a half three years.
0: And how did you find what's what's your relationship with uh, Thomas Wright?
1: Well, I, I <laughs> the director. It's quite funny. I, I was making my second film, Boy Raised. I was looking for people to play a, a Christian right wing, um, you know, teacher at this conversion therapy place. Yeah. And I was getting some tapes in, and this guy's tape was amazing. And I was like, I recognize this guy. Incredible! Didn't realize he was Australian until someone told me that he was the guy from Jane Campion's series Top of the Lake. Oh, yeah. A character called Tomo. And I was yeah. like, oh, that's where I've seen him. And I know he's Australian, okay. But he'd done a good trick of pretending to be a southern, you know, crazy Christian. Yeah. And um, I got on the phone with this guy, uh, like FaceTime with him, whatever. And uh, he said, oh, I've just got the finance for my first film that I've written. I didn't realize he was planning on directing. And I was like, "Well, obviously, go do that instead of work for me, yeah, but, um can I see it when you've finished, yeah, and a year and a half later, we'd both finished our films. He sent it to me, and I was you know nervous watching anyone's first you finished film. boy arrest, yeah, yeah, and uh, he sent me his, and you know he's a first time filmmaker, and it could have been terrible, but it was one of the best uh debut films i'd seen what what was it called acute misfortune yeah an australian film was voted uh, number one where there was a list of somebody saying best films of australia the last decade yeah and uh that was number one yeah but it's a very little seen film over here yeah Uh, it's about the relationship between a uh journalist and an artist and the malevolence and danger that he created out of this other true story between an artist and a journalist yeah. was so intense that I said to him, I'd really like to find something to do together. Yeah. And we talked and we yeah. talked about this strange. stranger and that's, that's where it all got. To. Who, who did the screenplay? Did you? He wrote it. He wrote it. I had planned, I had this vision that I would write and direct the movie Yeah, and when I saw his film, I just realized he was going to be far. It was going to be much better in his hands.
0: Well, it's you know, it's uh, it's not a straight narrative, right? It's broken up. It's like you know, there are bits, there are pieces, almost uh, you know, kind of poetic in a way, Mm. right? But there's a couple of scenes in there because I've seen you act in a lot of movies, where you know, I don't know where the moments come from but that scene in that movie where he start where he plays that music for you yeah what i mean when you're in that moment <laughs> i mean he really kind of committed to something like there was like a new depth of weirdness unfolding with that guy all the time
1: yeah you know i have this thing about writer directors that i really admire is when they give you a scene that feels necessary to the building of character or yeah. the building of story, but they give it to you in a really unorthodox way. Uh, I think David Michaud was fantastic at that in, in uh, King. Animal Kingdom. Oh, Animal Kingdom. You know, there's these scenes where you go, oh, the straight version of that scene would... You know, I could I could imagine it easily, but the way he gets you into that information is so unorthodox. Like, how does
0: he do? Because that's a menacing movie too. That was the first big movie, right? There's a scene.
1: There's a, yeah, there's a scene in uh, Animal Kingdom where Ben Mendelsohn is he's trying. Great. He's trying to say to his nephew, yeah. that he should man up because my character is, you know, been Got shot. has been shot. Yeah, and that if the you know, if she was on the other foot or if, if he was in that position, if he was the one that had killed, I would have already retaliated against the police. That's the information you get in the scene. But the way that David writes the scene is that Ben's character, through the fact that he's drinking, the nephew's drinking a gin and tonic, yeah. starts questioning his sexuality. Uh-huh. And the suit that he's wearing is quest- questioning the way he's dressing, therefore yeah. questioning his sexuality. Yeah. And really undermining his masculinity. Yeah. Um, and then gives him the information, and it's uncomfortably funny. Um, well, that's well, you know, that I love that.
0: Well, that's the, the drive shaft of the entire movie, The
1: Stranger. Mm, yeah, and that's why Thomas was was in my mind more qualified for it because it the the, the book is quite dry. It's a it's a kind of an account of the court case. Yeah, um, and therefore it becomes an account of the sting operation. This epic sting operation. And Thomas's way into it was to make sure that it wasn't just going to turn into a procedural.
0: Well, I mean, the, the fact that you don't know as an audience member that this is one of the, the, the biggest missing child you know, stories or events in the history of that part of the country. Mm. So you don't even get that
1: information until two-thirds of the way through. Yeah, there was something about him, I think, Thomas being a father... Um, Your character too. And my character being father. And and while I was making the film, I found out that I was going to become a dad. Really? That this uh, reluctance to try and exploit the material in a way that was, you know, there's a lot of television that really leans on the harm of children or the harm of women. Sure. And really explicitly shows that. We did the opposite. You know, you you hardly even know why the police are after this guy until three-quarters of the way into the film. Right. Mm. You're just thinking, he must have done something really terrible for there to be this many undercover cops chasing him around. So when you work with somebody like
0: uh, uh, Michaud, is that how you say his name?
1: Yeah, David Michaud.
0: And he's Australian. Yeah. So is that where you start picking up your own kind of approach to directing?
1: (laughs) Absolutely, my brother David, uh, another guy, Kieran Darcy Smith. Yeah. We have a little company called Blue Tongue, which is really more more of just a collective of filmmakers, and we don't really have an office or anything. You well, know, what does that mean, you guys?
0: Uh, you know, you bring projects in, you talk about them, you decide uh, is it a production company? Or?
1: Yeah, we don't. We don't have a. Pro- we don't not a production company for profit. Right. We we, uh, we basically are cross pollinating. Uh, sharing ideas yeah if I write a screenplay I'll email it to the gang okay and I'll get like you know the tough love so it's an artist collective yeah Yeah, and if somebody's got a first cut of something we'll always be first to see it yeah it's really just about um, safety in numbers. It's it's also the byproduct of it is it, it's it's a place where everybody gets envious of each other. <laughs> yeah, you, <laughs> you know, fucker! Now my this brother goes a- to a festival and yeah. sees David's got a new films. like yeah. no, I really want to make my next film. Like now, it's good you know? competitive spirit, a bit of competitive spirit, and and just um, the ability to criticise each other without um, wound.
0: Oh, it, it, but is that does that mean that requires a Tough skin, or are people uh, actually uh, uh, criticizing it in a pleasant way?
1: I think it's nice to get criticism. Well, no, it's never nice. We'd all prefer a pat on the back, I'm sure. But it's nicer to get criticism from people that uh, you understand where it's coming from and what their sensibilities are.
0: So, how long has this collective been in place? I mean, have you been showing them scripts since, like, uh, what was the first film?
1: Uh, we made a- my brother and I and Kieran made our first film in 1996, a short film. And then it it was just a series of short films until, I think, we made it. My brother and I made our first film in 2008. The Square? The Square. And was that part of the collective? I mean, did everybody... we had the name by then. Uh, And funnily enough, we only had the name because we needed uh, something to call our bank account, you know, because we needed to put some money in the the thing. Um, And yeah, so the collective has sort of been around since the late 90s. Now, when
0: you're writing a script, because it's weird to me... In terms of your writing and directing, the the ones that you chose to you know cross the board, you know wrote, directed, produced, yeah. because they're very different. Mm. I mean, the gift is it, again menacing, and it it is a surprising unfolding of a dynamic, but it's it's th- a thriller,
1: really. Yeah, right. It's a genre film. Yeah. yeah.
0: And that was, you know, you, you were trying to do that. Yeah. You're like, I'm going to write one of these. I,
1: wanna, I wanted to write uh, eight, my version of a 90s triangle thriller.
0: Yeah. And then Boy Erased, that's, that's a whole other ball of wax.
1: Yeah. yeah. But,
0: like, in terms of what you do acting-wise and, and writing-wise, I mean, I guess there are two different things, but why that story? <sighs>
1: I started to realize that pretty much everything that I was writing or everything that I was writing on my own yeah. or that I was leaning into as a writer, or you know, and that one I adapted, Boy Raised, kind of carried a, a, a theme that I keep revisiting even now. I still do it. And the and the thing that I keep revisiting is uh, I'm fascinated by what people, when people do things that are wrong and what the next thing they do is. So it's like, You know, um, I believe we all are, you know, prone to making, um, having moral hiccups. Yeah. Um, The biggest decision you're going to make is what you would do in the aftermath of of a wrongdoing. Um, I wrote a movie uh, called Felony in Australia in 2012 about a policeman who who, uh, causes an accident with a child and covers it up. The whole movie is about him getting back to a place of truth. In The Gift, it's the opposite. It's Jason Bateman's character being unable to get back to a place of um, contrition.
0: And I can't remember, is that because he had repressed the
1: memory? He was absolutely aware of the memory. (laughs) He was totally aware of his relationship with my character. Yeah, He just continuously, through the movie, alters his narrative every time... Uh, more and more information comes to his it's, wife. It's 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 interesting because you are presented
0: as the scary guy.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, that was the whole point of the gif was the the '90s triangle thriller is a, you know a lovely couple that are besieged by a crazy person. Right, and it's to bring us into the movie in that way, but then flip the roles of hero and villain. You know? So
0: okay, so with Boy Erased, the thing that was wrong or the wrongdoing
1: was on behalf of Russell Crowe as a father. Yeah, and mainly, Nicole, you know, this idea that as a mother, she acquiesced to the wishes of her husband to put her son through this uh, facility and gain her own kind of strength and knowledge uh, enough to go against the will of her husband, as, a, as her husband who is a pastor. And find acceptance. Find acceptance and make her own choices about it, you know. And, that, and acknowledge her wrongdoing. So this was a broadening of your theme to about the, the biggest degree you could. Yeah. And the other thing about it was I found enough psychological disturbance in Boy raised. You know, I read the book. I read the memoir because I, I, I felt like conversion therapy was something of a cult. Conversion I'm, therapy, no, it's a, yeah, and I'm it, I'm fascinated by cults. It,
0: well, I mean, well, it depends on how you feel about evangelical Christianity as to whether or not that's a cult.
1: Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I, that was that was my entry point into the book, and I found that that there was something really disturbed. There's almost like a horror movie if you were to amplify those events within that yeah um so I found enough psychological disturbance in that to satisfy that that other aspect of my interest in story but it's more of a straighter drama than than that
0: yeah so when you share your screenplays with the uh with the collective in general what what are your what do you find your uh, recurring faults are as a as <laughs> spelling. a <writer>? spelling <laughs> that doesn't count <laughs>
1: Look, I'm I'm always, there's a great quote that uh, Andrew Dominic said to uh, another friend of mine watching an early cut or a cut of a film and that a bunch of people had the same note. You know, there's a recurring yeah. kind of like criticism. And Andrew said, uh, if enough people are telling you you're sick, you got to go to the doctor. <laughs> this is a tough yeah. way of saying, you know, like... Yeah. But and what, I think what I'm always looking for is um, universal notes. You know, it's like if you get the same note three or four times, you really got to listen to it.
0: Right, but what like do you overwrite? Is
1: it like, like overwrite like, for sure? And
0: when you when you're putting together a screenplay, are you of the school? Because like if you look at something like The Stranger, look the movie you just did, uh, uh, the on the boat, the boys on the boat, boys in the boat, yeah. You know, that that story, there's nothing in that movie, no scene is not going to serve the story. Yeah. And, and it, it's very cut, you know, it's sort of cut and dry. I mean, yeah. there's an underdog story, you know, it's based on a true story. You got a little Hitler in it. <laughs> it's a touch you know, of
1: Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> a sprinkle of Hitler.
0: You know, I can see how that script works. Because, you know, whatever Clooney decided to do, he wrote it too, right, George? hmm mm. You know, he's like, well, this is this is the story. Yeah, and, and so, but when you look at something like The Stranger, you know, those are totally artistic decisions. Oh, when yeah. When you delineate, you know, when you you take a, a narrative out of out of uh, straight storytelling.
1: Yeah, and I think different people think in different ways. You know, I'm very plot driven. My right. brain is very, very leans towards plot. And I, I'm very impressed with people who understand emotional plot, more subtle plot, more sort of.
0: That's different.
1: It's very different. That
0: could go totally against
1: the the narrative. And I had a really, um, not an easy time. My my post-production on The Gift was five months from the moment we finished shooting to when it was released in the cinema. Which, I don't know, if anyone's been through the post-process, it's usually for a film, it's a lot longer than five months. But the movie moves in a straight line, you know, every component builds to the next and really the decisions were about do i cut certain things out yeah. if they're not necessary informationally okay. or where do i enter or depart a scene how, right. how can i compress things to make it more dynamic when i got to boy raised there was a multi there was there was two time frames uh, and suddenly uh, you know that warped my brain because you could repack that lunchbox any in any number of ways by going back yeah, and you could, you know, w- when you go back, when you flash back, when you, you know, sure. when you choose uh, those chapters, yeah. there became more dimensions to it than a straight line thriller. And, and then, I found it very challenging.
0: Right, but then you can also serve the the emotional narrative in a, in a different
1: way. Yeah. You make it deeper yeah. just by using story. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting when you, you choose to put certain scenes, how they can have an impact, far greater impact. Further into the movie than they would if you shoved them up front. Sure, vice versa. I mean, the, the options become not infinite, but yeah. far greater than uh, I don't know. something about a, a movie moving uh, in a you know chronological or a straight line yeah. that um, I find uh, is a little bit of an easier task in the edit room.
0: So, wait, now, and when you started acting. Was there always the idea that you were going to do
1: all of it, direct, write? No, my brother... Oh, uh, is he older? Yeah, he's a year and a half older than me. Not much. I, you know, I realized in hindsight that I've been writing since I was a kid. You know, I've got reams and reams of notebooks and, you know, I was of always... what? Oh, just like trying to be my own like Monty Python sketches. Oh, stuff. And, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah, just, just riffing on other people's sort of stuff. You but don't do a lot of comedies. No. Because <laughs> like I, <laughs> I find it terrifying. I tell you though,
0: man, you know I was on the road, you know, doing shows, and you know at HBO in the room, yeah. So I watched, and I've already, I'd already seen it two or three times, but I, I watched. Every, uh, Black Mass was on HBO. Oh yeah. So I would just you know check in with it whenever yeah. I you know like it was running. So like I, I watched it in bits and pieces a, a few more times, and that character is almost a comedic character. I loved it. <laughs> loved it. I mean, that guy is so close to being a clown, it's kind of great.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I, and I love doing that. And I actually think that, you know, I'm, I'm a far uh, warmer and funnier human being in real life than I allow myself to be much on screen. Uh, I just find comedy on screen terrifying. Weirdly, I, was, um, I did stand up when I was going through drama school. But it was like a... Where, in Sydney? In Sydney, yeah, at the Comedy Store. I, I know that place. So how many? who was around then? How long did you do it for? Oh, like uh, just about a year. Oh, really? Yeah, it was pretty funny. Actually, but it was it it was a, it was safety in numbers. It was me and my buddy from drama school. We, we basically did a little performance. Like a sketch bit. Yeah, we yeah. were p- pretending to be roadies.
0: Uh, oh, okay. That's pretty funny. And we
1: would extend it into this absurd... We were like two dumb roadies. And it was, you know, this this thing that really, really worked. We would end up setting up the mics before certain concerts in Sydney, and people would think we were really roadies, and oh, then so it would develop were, into an act. You oh, know? so you, did,
0: uh, you were doing a bit in a real live rock show.
1: Yeah, it's like, you know, it started sh- with a two, two, one, two, and then one of us would say three, and we'd, yeah, yeah. we'd stop, and then we'd yeah. slowly f- see if we could count all the way to ten, and then we'd count in foreign languages, and then we, you know, it was, it was sight gags and sound gags and... Um, Oh, that's funny. So and, you kind
0: of brought it around. To, so you had an inattentive audience. Yeah, and w- that
1: that you could build the attention because yeah sneak attack yeah people were
0: eventually like what the fuck is happening
1: yeah sneak attack it was great and we both you know but we were hiding behind characters sure it wasn't I have admiration for people who just themselves in a microphone and their own thoughts I used
0: to do a bit called uh, honest mic check where it'd be like test test one two I disappointed my parents two two <laughs> and just this list of my bad bad decisions one one
1: you know. <laughs> I mean it, it's so exposing and then so Nick and I did yeah. this act you you think uh, that
0: you think comedy's very exposing. Yeah. Big
1: time. So but when you did it you you were you were buffered by the character. Yeah, I was hiding behind a character and you know, sometimes we'd wear wigs and a beanie and just look like the you know, the bus driver from sure. Simpsons. You now, know?
0: but you know, in terms of like it depends what kind of stand up you do, eventually, you know, you do have some protection because yeah. you develop but like when you were watching stand up. In order to be inspired to do this, like where was the comedy store when you were doing it? By the time I did the comedy store it was out in some sort of weird area that was like a exposition center area or something. I can't. Yeah, remember. we
1: did three different venues actually. They moved three times. They're in Cleveland Street, uh, which was Surrey Hills sort of area or um, near Redfern. Then they were like way over near uh, near Five Dock, kind of um, which is further down this road called Parramatta Road. And then they moved to the, um, where the cinemas are. And right, that's like where Fox I was. Fox Studios. That's, that's the one I played yeah. last. Yeah. yeah, Fox Studios is where they are still I now. I just remember played.
0: going there and the guy took me to the zoo. What the guy who booked the place. He's like, "You got anything to do?" I'm like, "Not really." He's like, "Let's go to the zoo." <laughs> what a weird thing to do. It's a good zoo though. Great zoo, and it's Taronga. full of Australian weird animals. Yeah. So you know, it was good for me. I'm not going to see a gonna have a kangaroo walk up to me anywhere else. No, because they bounce. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but don't get, if I, you see a kangaroo walk, mate. You're going to make a lot of money.
0: But in my recollection, they're kind of around the animals. They're not all in cages, like some of the birds
1: and shit, right? In Taronga. Yeah. Well, you know, some of the ones that will eat your face off are going to be in a cage. <laughs> like yeah. Yeah. But I, so,
0: who were you watching though to mon- want to do comedy? Was it Monty Python mostly?
1: Well, yeah. Like I, you know, I was right into that. Yeah. Um, a lot of British comedy. Yeah. A lot of British comedy shows. Yeah. Did you go to shows? uh yeah my brother and i were going to lots of live shows yeah and we would do it in la too oh yeah yeah because we were living right down right up the street from the the comedy store yeah, that's where i worked yeah we, you know and yeah. when was this oh like over the last 15 years oh yeah yeah so just showing up. i remember stealthy. going to see like and, and some people that i used to see like uh tiffany haddish and sure. jared carmichael yeah. doing these little sets yeah there on a yeah. sunday night and then they're all you know they're off big stars and, yeah big stars so during this time, so you're doing stand-up when you're in college, mm. and were you studying? Yeah, I was studying drama. Where at? Uh, University of Western Sydney, which is shut down now. So we would catch the train in, do a set, catch the train. There was When it all came crashing down, What? <laughs> Nick and I decided that, you know, we'd been milking this this one thing for so long yeah, that we should be brave enough to try something new. And yeah. we went along on one of the open mic Wednesday nights. Sure. And there'd been these two whales that had been uh, hanging out in Sydney Harbour yeah. for ages. Yeah. So we did this whole thing about these two whales, which ended with Nick and I rubbing foreheads together and making whale noises. communication yeah, noises. Sure. You know, yeah. Anyway, we turned up on the Wednesday. There were two Bucks parties there, stag nights. Oh, God, the worst, yeah. And um, they just ripped us apart. And we weren't really good at handling hecklers. You yeah, because you, you were insulated in your bit. Yeah, and I remember thinking as we as we caught the train back, there was barely anyone on the carriage. You yeah. know, it was 10.30 at night or whatever. <sighs> Just thinking, I think that's the end of our comedy <laughs> Let's go hide out in Penrith. We're going to be okay, though. <laughs> and actually, I will say this, Nick. Yeah. Talking about exposing, he uh, he ended up doing this incredible piece on his own without hiding behind a character, in a very significant fashion. And we, you know, you know, like we all, not to throw anyone else under the bus, yeah. but you know, I suffer my own serious social anxiety and you know nick nick went through some things and rather than uh, avoid it did one of those things where he put himself in the place where he he exposed things that were going on for him it became very personal and it was one of the most incredible things i've ever seen yeah yeah and he did that on stage on stage what what, what by was by himself with a microphone what was uh, he going through uh i'd be i'd be you know, revealing too much of his personal life to tell you that. But he revealed. Well, it I guess on he stage. did. He did. <laughs> he'd uh, he'd had an episode and gone into an institution just oh, for a week. Oh shit! Yeah, and um, and he ended up kind of talking about the experiences. Yeah, and uh, it was kind of beautiful. It was. It's one of those sort of uh, transcendent stand-up yeah things. It wasn't just about the humor, right? Of course. Yeah, yeah. It ended in this sort of really kind of. Um, you know, yes. place of incredible pathos as well. Well, it's, that's the best kind. Do you know mm. Maria Bamford? Mm-mm. She's a genius. You should no.
0: you should check that stuff out.
1: I just love it when when uh, you know anything, whether it's a movie or uh, a play or a piece of stand up, gives you a little bit of a nutritional value as well. It's with like, a, with the risk,
0: yeah, the emotional risk. So from early on, uh, you decided you were not going to reveal yourself straight out no
1: <laughs> no way i'm not i'm not that brave i really aren't t- certain things terrify me it's weird what i'm willing to do on screen but i would never do you know uh without that mask and it's really kind of absurd to think that that the, the mask is just an abstract idea but
0: but but at some point you you knew that you wanted to perform and you knew that you wanted to act so, like, because I try to figure out. Sometimes there are certain actors. Some of you Australians are very good at this. I don't know what it is, if it's the water or the country, but but you know, to to sort of have that much faith in the mask, in order to reveal what seems to be, uh, you know, a fairly deep emotive zone mm. within you that you're aware of. Yeah. You know, you you, you all your focus has to go in uh, to that mask.
1: Yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't know what it is that makes me really interested to do it. I, I've become a real hermit in my life lately. Really, where do you live? Here, uh, we've been sort of traveling around. I have kids now, and we, we we were living like we were a circus for a while. I mean, we were, It's well, because of shooting. Yeah, shooting, and then we sort of got a place in London, and we've got a place in Sydney. Um, and I think after to what a year and a half being locked down in COVID in yeah. Sydney. Or sort of not really doing anything much, but hanging around the house, and we made that one movie, The Stranger. I just thought that's a sp- hell of a movie to make, you know, in the <laughs> middle of an isolated. <laughs> so you brought that to the screen, yeah, and I realised that I enjoy not going out. Yeah, you know, I think it's partly because <laughs> of the kids as well. But you know, I'm in the middle of a press tour for Boys in the Boat right yeah. now, and I. I get, um, I'm okay with it. I I know how to switch it on. I think being on a red carpet's like playing a character, but I would rather not be there. Yeah. (laughs) And I hate to, you know, look a gift (laughs) horse in the (laughs) mouth or whatever, you know, like I appreciate that, uh, it's part of the job. But going back, when you decided to act, Mm. you know,
0: where, where did you realize that you, what event or what role or what part of your life did you realize that you could effectively, you know, put these masks on?
1: I, um, I saw The Crucible. I remember when I decided I was going to be an actor. I was going to either go to, um, fine art school. How old were you? Uh, this is when I was like 16, 17. I was thinking about the end of high school. What am I going to do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really wanted to either go and learn to be a painter, um, or go to drama school. And I went and saw this production of The Crucible at the Opera House. Henry Miller. Yeah, Henry Miller. was was yeah. uh, this um, actor called John Howard. And I went back a second time to see it. My school took me. Yeah. And then I went back a second time. Right. And I remember just thinking, I want to do that. So my, my ambition at that time was about becoming a stage actor. Yeah. Um, I, I never saw the possibility of going anywhere beyond that. Yeah. Um, I just thought, you know, the idea of being in a movie was like way too far away from anything, you know, was out of my reach. But the stage was immediate. The stage was, and drama school was all about teaching kids to go and learn how to, you know, be in a play. Yeah. And I I distinctly remember thinking I was making my choice in that moment.
0: Yeah. And then you went to drama
1: school right out of high school? Yeah, I auditioned for like the prominent drama school. Yeah. Uh, No, I, I... I auditioned for the one that was sort of further out west, the lesser known school. Yeah. I think I was a bit, because I left high school, I was on the young side. I was like yeah. barely 17. And I thought I—I I think I was saying that I thought I was too young, but really I was probably just scared that I wasn't going to get in. So I went to this other drama school. Yeah. Best thing ever happened to me. Was not to go to the... No, it's just like the choice I made was the right choice, I think, because of the... Pe- acting or the school. Yeah, the the acting, yeah. the people I met, I fell in love, I, you know, all sorts of things that happened to me. If I'd have gone the other place, I'm sure I would have had a different set of you Because know, you would have been beating the shit out of yourself all the time. Yeah, and the other school was one of those schools that um, really was um, under the microscope in, you know, like agents were always looking sure, at sure. their work. Yeah. It was it was a, sort of a tougher gig at the drama school we went to, but I'll tell you what we did do, which is probably why I became a filmmaker as well. There was no budget for the yeah. school, so when we did a production, other students would, you know, design you know, help make the costumes. Yeah, I did lighting. Right. I helped on the lighting rigs of two senior shows. Yeah, I built uh, help help build the sets for two other shows. We were you theater know, it was community imp- imperative that we kind of you know diversified. Well, that's real theater, and a lot of a lot of students who went to Nepean, um, became, you know, started running festivals. Yeah. Um, coordinated things, became producers. You know, they weren't just going, if I don't become an actor, that's it. Right. You know. And, like, when you were growing up, I mean, okay,
0: so I don't know what the drive is, and it seems like, you know, what I noticed over the last week in terms of how you work, you know, it feels to me, and I don't know, because I'm speculating, because I've only done a bit of acting myself, but I, it, it seems to me that, you 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 find one i don't know what it is or how you do it but there there seems to be one key into these guys you play Mm. that at some point you're like you 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 see the role you accept the role and then you figure out there 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 it feels like there's a way that you figure out a way into that guy
2: Mm, mm, mm.
0: like you know because when you look at the character in black mass you know there you know that guy becomes a whole guy very quickly and he's and he's complicated because of his physicality.
1: Yeah. So, like, I don't know how you do that. Do you? Y- yes and no. I mean, I, I suspect part of it is, um, you know, most of the time I go to work, I'm having to also really think about my voice and trying to get rid of my Australian accent unless I'm doing... That's like a big lift. Yeah, and it's... it's, uh, And years ago, I used to get really nervous about it because... It felt like a general mishmash of just going, well, if I'm thinking about, there's no such thing in my mind as a general American accent. Yeah. Unless I had one and I grew up with one, that would be my accent. But, yeah. So I started thinking, well, the way to approach something like Black Mass is yeah. to get the real voice of the person. Did you go there meet that guy? No, but I had recordings of him. There's, yeah, yeah. There's, there's court... Uh, court recordings of him making depositions. There's uh-huh. and and different ones. Ones where he's on the defensive, and he's, he's ones where he's getting kind of heated. There's also interviews where he's very relaxed when he's not under fire, and he's going. Kind of, that's the voice I'm going to use. That's. All you
0: guys like that's the that's the one that that has the worst kind of. You can really fuck up a Boston accent.
1: Yeah, I uh, <laughs> <laughs> I had a guy at the like border patrol guy. Yeah that I gave my passport to and he's like, what are you doing? And I said, I'm on my way to, you know, Boston, I'm going to shoot this movie. And he's like, oh yeah, which movie? And he was clearly, I suddenly was like, oh, he's clearly from Boston. Yeah. I said, oh, it's, you know what, this thing about Whitey Bulger. And he, his last words to me were don't fuck it up. <laughs> and he, he was, but he had these eyes like, I'm never going to let you back in the country for it. <laughs> yeah. Don't fuck it up. And what was weird is that John Connolly didn't just have a typical Southie accent too. He was, tro- he had, he had been in New York and, and Baltimore and had been educated and otherwise. His accent was a bit of a mishmash, and it was very nasal. And I'm thinking, if I really go for this, some people who know will be like, yeah, that's a pretty good assimilation of yeah. him. And other people will be like, what the fuck are you doing? Oh, right, right, right. And I just thought, oh, I'm just going to go for it. I loved it, man. I, You
0: know, it's like I watched, the first time I watched
1: it, because
0: I, I interviewed uh, Cooper, you know, the, and he's a you know he's a deep dude. He means. Scott business. has got yeah, he, yeah. Means means business, that guy.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> he does. And uh, and you know, the first time I watched it, yeah, I had a little bit of a hard time getting past, uh, you know, Depp's uh, look. Yeah, right. It, like I said, who was I talking? to? I was talking to Sarsgaard the there. I said I, I, it was sort of Nosferatu, yeah, meets Whitey Bulger. You know. Mm. But then after, like, the, he nailed the accent so hard, you nailed it so hard, and uh, Rory is a fucking genius. Yeah, Rory, man. What the fuck is that? Jesse Clemens. Clemens' great. Everybody, everybody's great. Yeah. He, but when his wife, she's also a genius. The woman who played your wife, Julianne
1: Nicholson. Yeah. She's
0: she's amazing. I she's just a, saw her. Excellent. It's crazy. But when she she goes, You're walking different than you're? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like and a you, peacock. Yeah, and you are. Yeah. And you had to, at some point, do you, like, do you make those decisions or does Cooper come up and does Scott say, like, all right, this is where you
1: I just love, there's little clues in every script that just go, oh, that's something I really got to lean on. Yeah. You know, what I loved about, um, you know, Seinfeld, it's a great lesson for, for writing anything, even if it's not comedy, is... Those identifiable character traits that immediately make you look like he's a close talker is this is that? I think it's it's worth every now and then thinking about characters and going, what is that identifiable thing? You right. Know, if he was an animal, what would he be? You know, uh, animal pe- stuff. John yeah. was a real peacock. You know? Yeah, yeah. People described him as a peacock. And yeah. I'm like, oh, well, how do I be a? Yeah, yeah how Do yeah, I yeah. be a peacock? Yeah. Um, and other characters are diminutive or they they sort of uh, squirrely or whatever. And 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 after a while. I love going on set going, all right, well, if we needed to improvise the whole scene, now I feel comfortable doing it. Okay, you so, know. That, so that's that's how you enter the thing. Yeah.
0: Now, like, but with uh, The Boys in the Boat, like, that guy is, you know, he's a coach. Mm. He's a leader, but mm. he's, he's also got the weight of his own past on him, expectations. Mm. Yeah. So
1: when you did that work for that guy, what was it? I was just looking at all the coaches that I see pacing sidelines of you know various oh, yeah, sports yeah. who just look like they hate their job. I mean, you know, I was just trying to let as little warmth out of myself as possible. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I know because George said this to me that, you know, he was starting to send the dailies to the studio. That was just like, yeah. well, hold on a second. This guy's just not likable at all. And it's like, well the whole point of the script was suggesting that he never smiles, this guy, and that, you know, will this be the season that we might see a crack a smile? Right. I was like, well, that's the indication that he's one of those coaches that looks like he's on the verge of a heart attack. Yeah. And that he hates, he, he derives no joy from his job. Because yeah. he cares so much. So I was like, good, I can get my grimace out here yeah. and I can uh, not smile so much. But I felt this, um, I felt a little bit of pressure from the studio side, almost like... I've got to do that while also being likable. I'm like, no, I want to get to the end of the movie and then be able to look one of the boys and say, "I'm proud of what you've done." And it has weight. Has weight, you know, because yeah, that's what some father-son relationships that's right. are like.
0: Yeah. Well, there was a like a a, a a lot of father-son stuff in that movie. Yeah. You know, and the movie, I, I think it's the tightest movie Clooney's
1: made. It, it has a galloping rhythm to it.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's just like as a period piece, it's solid, and mm. the story, you know, in some ways. You know, it's just how you going... You can't lose with an underdog story if they win. hmm You know what I mean? In a way. So, you know, you're kind of... You're protected by the story. So he's got to figure out how does he build that.
1: Yeah. The it's, suspense of it. You're right, isn't it? Because it's... Um... We all know how they're going to end. I mean, sure. he pointed out, it's the same as a romantic comedy. It's like the movie exists because they're eventually going to get together.
0: So how do you build the tension?
1: It's about the ride, yeah.
0: And then there's tension between you and the the kids, and, and there's tension between him and his absentee dad, mm. right? And there's like a, a weird tension between America and Germany that's not in full force yet.
1: Yeah. It's also, you know, there's, I think the structure of the film is, yeah. you know, there's three big races, and there's an obstacle that emerges after each victory. Oh, that's right. There's like For a, the next race. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah. then Joe, which is, you know, yeah. Callum, Callum's character becomes his own obstacle because of his dad. Like, as you point out, he's, you know, I mean, one of the things that really kills me about that story, actually, because, you know, now I'm a dad, everything about children affects me a gazillion times more than it used to. And How old are your kids? Two and a half, twins. Oh, so you you got into it late? Yeah, yeah. I was, so now, like, you have. This I'm going to be the dad at drop off. It's like, yeah, yeah. granddad or yeah, you're yeah, the sure. dad or I'm the dad. Yeah, know? yeah. Um, but, but but it opened up a whole party, I guess, huh? Oh, big time. And it's changed the way that I read things that I'm interested in How different stuff? stories. Uh, I am just when I read stuff about fathers and yeah. their kids, right. It resonates with me on a whole new level. Well, that's
0: interesting because at the place you're at now, with them being so young and the love being so pure and the disappointment not having happened yet, Mm. you can work from that place and then build on that uh, Mm. speculatively.
1: Yeah. You know? (laughs) I was in the middle of shooting 13 Lives with Ron Howard in Queensland. Yeah. The kids were due uh, a month after we were. Due to rap, but they're twins, and they came early and really early, like seven and a bit weeks. Yeah, yeah. And Ron and I, Ron who has twins, you know, not that that matters, but he he was very empathetic to the situation. He said, as soon as it's going to happen, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll let you go. Yeah, for a week, you know. Obviously, we've got to finish at some point. Yeah, right. And uh, and so they all wished me well, and I got on a plane and went down, and the next day the kids were born, and um. Then I came back well, eight you days fa- how, later. What was it like, you know, being, you know, what in your fifties at that I'm forty nine now, so I was forty seven and the first scene back, I'm in this movie, uh, telling these Thai officials that in order to rescue these boys from the cave, that most certainly there's gonna be fatalities. And even saying it now, yeah, I I couldn't Stop myself from feeling emotional about. It. If I'd have shot the scene a week and a half earlier, I would have had no trouble. And I'm, you know, look, we all, everyone has ever been to drama school at some point. has gone, look at me cry, look at me cry. Yeah, but there are days on set where you're just like, all right, no, this is not a, this is not one of those scenes. Better, I'm stoic here. And I had a real hard time being stoic because I'm just going, oh, kids dying. Oh, you know. yeah, but but stifling the feelings is a is a choice. Yeah, yeah, but it was like almost impossible to stifle no them. Kidding. I was like, I kept saying, "Ron, can we just do one more take? Can I just try and be a bit cooler here?" He's like, "No, no, it's good." It's like, yeah, I don't know. I think I'm milking it too much. Um, but I become far more emotional. There was a novella I read about, uh, where a small component of it, you know, hopefully, be in a movie about it. Yeah. But it's a uh, father loses his wife and his child, and I was very moved by that when I read it ten years ago, yeah. <laughs> and then I read it again. Last, you know, last month.
0: It's funny because I don't have kids and I'm 60, but I've always had animals. And now what's happening to me is I can't take any animal pain at all. I can't, I can't take it. If I'm just watching a fucking Instagram reel and the animal's in trouble, I'm like, oh my God. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah. So uh, my brother, uh, was, started his career at the same time I went to drama school. He went off and became, uh, trained with stunt guys. Yeah. And He's a stuntman. He, he, he was. A, yeah. he, well, he still is. And he, and he's a qualified stunt coordinator. But he directs the movies. And he directs stuff. movies. Yeah. And he's directed three series of a TV shows. Yeah. He, he teaches himself whatever he's interested yeah. in. And he's very good at it. He yeah. can edit everything. Anyway, I get these messages from him that are basically links to an Instagram thing. Yeah. And the moment I open them, I see it's a guy on a BMX bike yeah. on the top of his parents' roof. Yeah. yeah right. And I know exactly how it's going to end. <laughs> I can't watch it because in, uh, 2000 I had a neck injury, nearly broke my, uh, neck. I was, I was drunk on a beach in Thailand and oh I was doing uh, somersaults somersault and I, I, um, I stretched all the nerves and I couldn't use my left arm for eight months, What? Pre- but I could have broken my spine, whether it's that or something else, I can't watch people get head injuries or. You know, well, it's,
0: it's it's not it's a good thing. I, I don't know that we're all supposed to get numb. No, Because some of those accident videos, those real, you're like, what what happened to that guy? Yeah, exactly. What, what what about the next day?
1: Yeah, I I can't, I just cannot watch the end of him. My brother sends them to me all the oh time. Oh god, I'm like, dude, stop sending them to me. So
0: you you fucked up your, you almost broke your
1: neck on a bike drunk. Yeah, no, I was I was doing a somersault oh. on the beach. Oh. So was that the, was that the end of the drinking? That was Y2K. Remember when we all thought the planes were going to fall out of the sky? I ended up in the back of a pickup truck uh, on an island in Thailand getting driven to, someone was going to wake up a doctor and say, hey, this guy can't move his arms. Yeah. And, um. Oh my God. And that was, uh, and I was about to come back and shoot this movie in Australia on a big cargo ship. Yeah. And I had to. Get, I, I came into rehearsal with one arm that was like a string. Oh because no! Of my arm had atrophied. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and I knew I had to do all these scenes where I climbed like rope ladders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I went up to the director and I said, "I oh, look, uh, before we start shooting, yeah, you, you need to know that I can't use one of my arms, and I don't know what's wrong with it. Yeah." And she was like, we'll work it out. I was like, thanks. (laughs) So
0: you're flapping around, your arms flapping around? Yeah,
1: I had to to grab it with the other hand and put it in my pocket. My father uh, was a member of golf, um, God bless golf, I I don't play, but because of his golf community, you know, they're all doctors and surgeons and this and that and (laughs) politicians. He knew of a guy that knew a guy who who was a a neurosurgeon, which is impossible to get an immediate appointment with. And he did a favor for me and he yeah. saw me and he said, Oh, your nerves are connected. They're just like really stretched. Yeah. So this is going to take you about six months to get the movement in your arm back. Oh, but it got back. Got back. So, but what did,
0: but like, what about the booze? I mean,. <laughs> Did you, did that,
1: was that an indicator that maybe? I'd love to say that that was like full rock bottom for me, but uh, I still drink. I haven't had a drink for, for about a week. Yeah. Which feels great, but I'm, I'm Australian and I'd have to hand my passport in if I, (laughs) yeah. National pressure. I'm, I'm pretty, I've got a really uh, good level of control with all that stuff. Yeah. Was there a time where you didn't? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. 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 I, I went through some stuff in my 20s. Yeah. Um, Big time, and um, but no, not anymore. Oh, good, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) That's a whole episode. Yeah, you know, like it's. uh, it's, um, I tell you what. I tell you what. I will say about that. Yeah, I um, and 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 this is why I I have such a big uh, love for my folks beyond what I would already have anyway. Is that that you know those times when kids sort of stumble and fall. Yeah. Parents can be amazing if they come at you with very little judgment yeah. and just pure love. Yeah. And I had that. Oh, good. Um, but, you know, I I was a private, I, I started life, my father was starting a, his legal business. Yeah. He was a lawyer. You know, we weren't that wealthy, but yeah. by the time I finished high school, I was very much sort of upper middle class. Yeah. And I always had a lot of judgment for anyone who fell off the rails in yeah. any way. Yeah, it's like oh, you know, poor choices. You yeah, know? Right, I didn't right. see addiction as anything yeah. other than uh, just you know bad choices. Sure. So to then become a person who's sort of you know doing those out of things, control, out of control. Yeah, I I you know I used to uh, think I oh, you know if you if you had regrets in life and you could turn back time, I could take that little chunk of my life away. Yeah. I would never do that. Because I, 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 believe that as an actor, your greatest strength is to have empathy. Yeah. You know, observation and empathy and, and, and to go through any experience where you otherwise would have judged yourself Yeah, suddenly equips you with a new form of empathy. So sure. now when I see anyone going through anything, I just have empathy for it rather than, oh, they, you know, you're, you're a rat bag and right. you, d- you deserve everything that you get.
0: Well, you yeah. can take two steps. You can be like, you know, I understand what you're going through and I, and I feel it in my heart, but you're a, an idiot. And- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just the outer step, you know, the empathy step.
1: Dude, yeah. I mean, I was, in, um, I was down the road, actually, yeah. uh, on, on Sunset. And yeah. I used to spend a lot of time in LA, and I haven't been here for years. Yeah. And this guy walked into the um, gas station. And he's a homeless guy. Yeah. He opened the fridge. He said to the tenant, he said, I'm going to take this Gatorade. I'm stealing it. Yeah. I'm going to steal it. Yeah. Stop me if you want, but I'm stealing it. Yeah. And then grabbed it and walked out. <laughs> I was like, wow. I mean, you know, also, look, if someone wants to take something from me, chances are if they're risking going to jail for it, they really need it. No, yeah. And I I mean, I'm and okay what, without it. And what do you have?
0: Like, you know, they can't, you know, there are things, like I always think about that. If they rob me or they want something, it's like, all right. You hey, can get
1: it. a new one. Sure. It's all just, replaceable. Just don't touch my family, you know?
0: So- did you look, in looking back on that period in your life, did you, fe- was it self-medicating? Did you feel like, you know, you were resolving something
1: that needed to be resolved? I think it was just the slippery slope of, um, uh, you know, I, I do think that there's an aspect of me that I I, I find my brain is very noisy. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I, I do think that um, drinking and other things help yeah. me just kind of escape my thoughts. But yeah. I you know, I was just one of those guys who was um you know, young and just go oh, you know, you try this and you try that. Yeah. It's like now that now that you think about it, you you know why your parents sort of talk about this is a gateway to this, is a yeah, yeah, gateway yeah. I was just like, I'll try that and, yeah, nah, yeah, yeah sure nah, nah, enough. Yeah, and then one day you try <laughs> something and you're like, Oh, this is pretty good. <laughs> this is pretty good this is a way of life yeah yeah, yeah, yeah yeah this is good i'm gonna take me more of that yeah yeah, yeah. Give you, it to me then you're full in you've <laughs> yeah, gone yeah. through all the gates yeah yeah
0: <laughs> well good for you for pulling out now what about it doesn't seem you've done
1: stage in a long time not a long time 10 2010 i did straight car you play stanley i played stanley holy shit yeah yeah how was that mask that was, uh, it, it was different feelings in different cities. Sydney, I was, I felt 10 feet tall and we had a great time. Washington, DC, where we went next was great. And then in, in New York, I felt the looming shadow of everybody, whether they were praising me or criticizing me, everybody, you know, was talking about, you know, everybody, every review, everything yeah. was about Marlon Brando. Right. And not that they were saying, oh, you know, you got close to being mum, right? sure. You did this. And it was, yeah, yeah. But it was just the feeling like you were kind of like rubbing shoulders with or encroaching on a ghost. Yeah, sure. And I started to get very self-conscious and, uh, and I wasn't enjoying myself. And it was weird because Kate and I, Kate, beautiful Kate, uh, she said to me and... and um, Kate Blanchett. Kate Blanchett said yeah. to me and one of the other guys, in the play. Like, yeah. Because we were cramped in these tiny dressing rooms and she had this massive room all to herself. Yeah. Come and share my dressing room. Yeah. Play would end and Lauren Bacall would come in or Martin Scorsese would come in. Right. Meryl Streep would come in. Yeah. You know, like every night someone came to kiss the ring. Yeah. You know, and she deserved, you know, she was wonderful. And, yeah. And a movie star who'd sort of rub shoulders with all these people. Yeah. And so we were in there taking our makeup off every night, meeting all these sort of incredible you yeah. know, film stars. And, sure. Um, one night I got a photo with Joel Schumacher, Joel Gray, and Joel Cohen. Yeah. Four Joels in my <laughs> photo. Yeah,
2: yeah,
1: um, And I felt rotten. I mean, I, I didn't feel, I felt great from the moment the play started to the play ended because I was too busy yeah. to feel, you know, low on myself. Yeah. But, Every morning I wake up going, oh, my God, like, am I okay to do this? And I feel terrible, and I feel, like, really self-conscious. Just because you were beating the shit out of yourself? I was beating the shit out of myself, and I just didn't enjoy it. And it made me not want to do theater anymore. And it's only now that I've started to think I would like to go back and do something that, that was uh, in a small theater. Um, but it Because I used to love it, man. I did it for years. We did
0: and... a lot of Shakespeare, too, which is, yeah. like, that really – that's got to inform
1: a lot of things. I mean, you're able to go through all the emotions yeah, yeah. within that language. I did Henry IV, yeah. parts one and two. No idea what I was doing, but, you know, it was trying to, I was trying to drag Shakespeare into my own sense of whatever the modern world was, yeah. and I was avoiding the language. Yeah, oh, really, yeah. And then I worked with this um, beautiful actor in Australia, John yeah. Gaydon, who was a sort of a master... Uh, at understanding and leaning into the language, in order that when we did Henry V, I yeah. could really, really embrace it, and I I stopped kind of judging uh, Shakespeare's language as some museum piece, right? And actually, the more you lean into it, and I know this because I've watched Ian McCallum on gazillion YouTube videos talk about Shakespeare yeah. and, and convey meaning. Yeah. by really leaning into the I- iambic pentameter. Sure. Leaning on the right sort of uh, stresses. And uh, it's like there's a science to it that is divine. Yeah. I, apparently. It's lasted And some century. people just have, have this sort of mastery of it and others don't. So know? the the role of Stanley didn't break you. It was you who broke you. Yeah. Yeah. I I, was, I got inside my own head. I went to a health farm at the end of uh, doing that play. But that year I'd done Animal Kingdom for like four weeks, beginning yeah. of the year, then went off and did Warrior, which is the hardest physical challenge I've she ever had. you got all ripped. And then I went home, um, had like two weeks off and went into rehearsal for Streetcar. Yeah. And I was exhausted, but more than anything, I think I was my own worst enemy. Allowed the, the It just felt like I was um, cursing myself.
0: Well, I mean, that's the fucking problem with, with talent and empathy and having a certain type of personality is that you know, when you turn on yourself, it can go pretty fucking deep. Yeah. And, and you, can, you can lose that battle.
1: Yeah. And I find y- it I do it all the time. I'm doing it even at the moment with- um, <laughs> Right through this conversation? You're <laughs> yeah. doing great. You're doing, you're doing great, Joel. I'm pinching, I'm cutting myself under the table. <laughs> yeah. Sorry about the blood. <laughs> um, the, um, I delayed making my first film, directing my first film for a good year and a half, two years, because I was finding any excuse to procrastinate because I was terrified of doing it. Yeah. And then- uh, The within, gift. Yeah. And within like uh, the first day of shooting, I was walking up the driveway towards the set going, what kind of person am I going to be? Because I've never done this before. Like, am I going to- The worst aspects yeah. of my personality can come out. Am I going to make my day? And can I construct a scene? Because if I can construct a scene and I trust the script, then maybe I've got a chance to make a good movie. By the end of the first week, I'd seen a few scenes cut together and I had faith. I was making my days and I was enjoying myself. Oh, good. But the fear in that year and a half leading up to it, then I get close to making my second film and exactly the same fears were there, maybe even amplified, that am I going to be able to do this? I'm like, I've done it before. I've made a movie before. (laughs) Like, Surely I should have felt the confidence that go, I've been through this experience and now i'm thinking about making another film like towards the end of next year yeah. i've written something and i'm already filling my head with the doubt of that huh already and it's um i find it fascinating about I mean, we we've been on this press tour for boys in the boat yeah talking about well you know why do we love an underdog story i think we love yeah. an underdog story because we we all have imposter syndrome yeah i think we're all going oh, we're not really all people think we're cracked up to be. We're not that smart. We're not this. I, I think we're all carrying around self-doubt.
0: Well, I mean, sure. But, I mean, does it happen to you, you know, in roles? Or is it just about the task of, of being a leader and
1: a director and driving a thing? Uh, I uh, would often agree to do a job because I'm scared of it. Yeah. Uh, I would avoid doing some jobs because I feel like I've already, you could just do it already. Yeah. Yeah. But, but the thing about saying yes to a job that scares you is you say yes, knowing that the fear is not really going to set in until close to. Closer to shooting, I never, know and then that. there's no way of backing out. So
0: you you corner yourself,
1: yeah. But I think I think it's important to challenge myself. Of course, tried to challenge yeah. yourself.
0: Well, I mean, that's yeah. I mean, when you corner yourself, you, you know, that's where you know your instincts will take over, and and you've done the work, whether you know it or not. I I just I have a hard time with the with the creative self doubt because really it becomes like I I was trying to talk about it on stage. The difference between you who engages publicly. And, and what's inside you you're, you, you're literally negotiating with that thing inside you, like, so it doesn't take over. Yeah. So you don't show up and go, I can't do it, I can't do it. You yeah.
1: Know? I, I have this uh, feeling too, like, um, you just, something will come to the rescue. Right. But that's, you know? but that's the, crea- that's so you're hooked on that. Yeah, it's bit, it's that I really admire people who are great at uh, improvisational right. stuff as well because that really is sort of leaning off the edge of the cliff and going, I will land on my feet. But that feeling like something will come to the rescue. I, I love going to work in the morning for a scene. Yeah, uh, We did a TV series for Apple that finished in April. I couldn't think, I couldn't even look at the schedule the day Was ahead. that Star Wars thing? No, it was uh, this thing called Dark Dark Matter. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I was playing... Two versions of the same guy, and yeah. every day, all day, shooting, and I'd finish a scene and go, "Okay, what, what's the next scene?" Because I couldn't prepare a whole day, right? And there was something uh, really terrifyingly um, sort of improvisational about the thought process of leaning into the next scene because that's exhilarating, the, right? But that's the pure creativity—is when it comes, you don't know where it came from, yeah. And you go, "I don't know how I'm going to make this this scene. I have to get it, get it done." And not go home beating myself up yeah. that I didn't do a good enough job. Yeah, and it's, something comes to the rescue, and you're able
0: to do that. You're able to not beat yourself up. You know when you did a good job.
1: Yeah, oh, but that's the, good. The, the one thing that um, the one thing that changed for me uh, on the Great Gatsby. Yeah, um, Baz is such a collaborative, amazing guy. That, a lot going on. Yeah, and there's big setups. So in between setups, sometimes he'd play the monitors and people would put on their 3D glasses and watch what we just shot. Yeah. And I'd get involved. It was like, oh, okay, this is, I get to watch me in this scene. I'll do that. And I'd go home and I'd be cutting the scene together in my head almost and, uh, and overthinking what I'd provided for him. And, uh, and I'll tell you who, you know, like all the actors would do it. The only person who wouldn't was Kerry Mulligan. And we'd all be there with our 3D glasses. Kerry would be sitting over there with the headphones in going basically like, no, 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 no. Like didn't want to hear it, didn't want to listen, didn't uh-huh. want to see it.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And ever since that movie, I just, I'd never look at playback. And Wait. even when I'm directing, my brother will come and sit behind the monitor. Yeah. And I'll know what the frame is, and I'll have a double walk around inside of it, and I'll know what the parameters are. And I look at my brother after a take, and I'm like, you know, was that? How was that? You know, and he gives me a gesture that says, yeah, or go again. Yeah. Um, And I'll only look at it if it's me and another actor in a two shot. Um, But watching playback means the next time I perform, I'm inside the scene and outside the scene watching myself
0: yeah why add, I mean why add the other thing mm. there's yeah. no there's no
1: way you, it, it can be good have you ever watched yourself do you watch yourself do stand up N- not often how do you feel when you do
0: I've gotten better at it because I can watch myself going back to 1989. Wow. Like, I, 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 it was a big moment when I watched 1989 me Yeah. and had the experience of, like, well, that's me. I mean, he doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> you know, he's scared.
1: But it is me. I was more concerned with it being me yeah. than being bad. Man. Someone once said to me, watching a live performance is like watching a high school play through the wrong end of a telescope. But nowadays, you know, they, they, they've they staged these, like, um, what do you call it, Shakespeare, British state Shakespeare plays yeah. or something, and they got a better camera crew doing it rather than just a document from one angle. Right, 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 right. But, um, you know, we all had that experience of listening to our voice for the first time going, fuck, I sound like that. Yeah, yeah.
0: But there's nothing you can do in that moment. There's no way you can backload a better you. Mm. Like, there, there's people that are like, I
1: wish I was in my 20s again. I don't. No. <laughs> There's no way. Me either. Me either, man. Yeah. But that's interesting about watching yourself on stage because that, that, there's, there's nothing in my mind more pure than, say, playing jazz or doing stand-up in yeah. terms of uh, interaction with an audience because what? it's like riding a wave or whatever.
0: Sure, but you figured out a way to make it exciting. I mean, that, that thing you're talking about, which is what drives how I work, mm. where you don't know where it's going to come from, yeah. but you can only trust that you have the, what's in place to bring it. Yeah, uh, but that's like that's also sort of an addict's trip. You know what
1: I mean? Yeah, because <laughs> there are, there are actors that will work the fuck out of something yeah. before they get out there. There's a rigidity that makes uh, like so. There's some people I can understand why. If you go, if you're going to change a word of this scene, you need to let me know the night before. Yeah, and I understand that. Sure, but I think um, I have this methodology in my mind, and I know like when I hear about the way. Um, Say zone of interest. Yeah. was shot. I got a.
0: Wa- I haven't seen that yet. It's not. I didn't. I missed the screening. You know this
1: idea of actors behaving in a room yeah. by themselves with yeah. hidden cameras. Yeah, the idea of rehearsing in yeah. the morning without a crew and right. then like letting a camera crew come and document a long take of. Yeah. Say, these different ways that actors can feel less like they're just giving tiny components of a scene, yes. and have more of a feeling of that you that you would get on a live stage. Yeah. Because um, filming can be very stilted. It's the worst. Yeah, you it, do
0: you do a scene. You're on. you the camera's on for three minutes, and you go sit for nine hours. Yeah, and then you come back and you got to pick up. I don't get how you guys do that, really. Yeah,
1: especially when the, um, you know, the whole trying to hold on to certain darker emotions. Yeah, yeah. you know, you <laughs> see so these four actors try hang on for dear life with their earpods in, listening to like. You know, Coldplay or whatever is going to get them juiced up. <laughs> yeah, You're yeah. Like, yeah. Try to you stay know, sad. Yeah, don't, 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 don't bring my latte until after I'm done.
0: Well, this movie, <laughs> the, the the boys in the boat, must have been kind of a night, a fun
1: thing to work on in a way. Oh no, it was fun. Yeah, and it came out great. Yeah, everybody looks good. Yeah, and uh, I feel like, you know, George could write. A pretty great expose of Hollywood from his perspective. Yeah, but he's uh, well. <laughs> he tells stories that are so
0: right. Well, that that'd be a fun one.
1: Yeah, you know, like because a lot of
0: people once they write the expose about Hollywood, that that's the end of it. Yeah, that's they're it. Just, they just burn all the bridges. Or at a point in their career, where bitter. Fuck you.
1: He's just bitter.
0: But I I talked to George, and you know, in 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 real life, he did something that that I'll I'll never forget. Uh, uh, that
1: indicated that he's genuinely a, a good guy. Yeah. Decent yeah. guy. Yeah. I love that, you know, when you hear that. So I, for years, um, you know, I, the rumor mill of actors is so crazy. I mean, yeah. about actors, you know, i yeah. worked with Christian Bale and, you know, it's like, oh, he must be like, he must be a really angry guy. I'm like, he's just complete sweetheart. <laughs> You Know just because there's a recording of him yelling at someone who did something rightfully on so, a probably rightfully so, right? <laughs> yeah. You get know, it, or Tom Cruise, and you know, these weird stories. Yeah. I've heard stories about Tom that I will that eclipse a thousand weird stories, yeah, you know, yeah. of just generosity beyond, yeah, and not because he's rich either, yeah, because he's thoughtful, yeah. Um, and I <laughs> it's always Think back to, and you know, my family back in Australia, there's, you know, things get reduced to these sort of weekly magazines. Yeah. Is it true that so-and-so did this? And I'm like, I have no idea. Yeah, yeah. I have no idea. Good luck to him. Yeah. Well,
0: that's the risk of being a public person at a certain level,
1: Mm. is that people are
0: going to project and want sorted things. They're going to want the worst. But a lot of, they just, people don't realize that, you know, you all have lives. Yeah. Every day is a day. Yeah, yeah. Do, you know what I mean? Like, to, for some people to do what people think they do, it would have to be half their job
1: yeah. to be that shitty. <laughs> do you, have you ever spoken to Guy Pierce? No. Guy Pierce. Used to be an Australian TV show called Neighbours, you know, yeah. where a lot of Australian actors start Neighbours yeah. or Home and Away and these mm-hmm. sort of soaps. And Guy was like one of the first big stars in one of those shows. And this lady at a grocery store came up to him and she's like, Oh, Guy Peace, Guy Peace, you're in Neighbours. Yeah. He's like, um, What do you do for a day job? <laughs> He's like, What do you mean? She goes, Well, the show starts at seven and <laughs> goes for half an hour. <laughs> She thought they would turn up and do it live, run around this cul-de-sac where it was set, just from house to house, have a little breather and a cup of tea during the ad break. (laughs) But during the day, he could have a whole other career.
0: That's hilarious. (laughs) I'm obsessed with that movie he did uh, years ago called Ravenous. Oh yeah, Ravenous. I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with it. I, like I, I put it on the shelf for a while, but now I've watched it a couple of times recently, and I'm like, oh my god! This director is a female director, isn't it? Yeah, uh, I don't remember who it was, but Jesus, it's a real it's 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 satire, and I, I think it was mislabeled and and misrepresented to not be one of the great satirical movies. Really? Oh. About about the you know the uh, you know the expansion, the westward expansion. Mm. I mean, it's all about that. You know, and it's the device of it is horror, but yeah. but it's satire. You know, he's been some very interesting movies guy. He, he seems like an interesting guy. I just love him. Well, good talking to you, man. I don't want to hold you up. You probably got other shit to do, right? Just gonna get vomited on, kids. <laughs> oh, it's kids now. Yeah, everyone's here. All right, buddy. Well, I hope uh, I hope it gets a, a good response to the movie, and I'm a real fan of the work. Thanks, man. Thank you. There you go. Those Australians, man. Something in the water. I don't know. The Boys in the Boat is in theaters now. Hang out for a minute, folks. Folks, on Thursday, Greta Gerwig is back on the show, mostly to talk about the crazy year she had as the director of Barbie. If you want to hear the first time Greta was on, you can check out episode 869 right now. It was a different time.
3: You know, in a way, I feel like so much of filmmaking you know if you've written it and you've directed it um, it has to make sense to you because there's no other reason to make it I mean it has to fit your weird need in some way and f- and because that that's the hunch that everybody else is going off of uh, that's the thing that everyone else is bringing their talents to and collaborating it with collaborating with and even the thing the, the the structure of the movie and certain things that if people said oh does it need to be this way one of the good reasons about like putting together a movie is it forces you to consider everything because it's all takes time and money and do you really need it and yeah. and you get very real with yourself very fast about what you need
0: sure you got yeah you and, budget, for budgetary reasons you got to get lean
3: yeah and then but then what's great about it is you realize that there. Are, the the things that 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 matter that you that you need that you absolutely need you'll probably develop more intellectualized reasons for later but in the moment you just know you need them and you don't question it right? because if you start questioning it, then it all goes out the window right. because I'm not making movies about, you know, it's not a, it's not, I'm not making a crime caper. It's not like I need to know this information <laughs> to know how they broke into right. the safe. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's more subtle than that. But it, it, if I lose track of it, then we're all lost because there's no reason to make this anything. You
0: know? Yeah. Then it's just darkness and hopelessness. But, yeah. Thank God why should...
3: is there something rather than nothing? <laughs>
0: You don't want to live there. No. That's episode 869 with Greta Gerwig available right now in our free podcast feed. Just use whatever app you're using to listen to this episode. If you want every episode of WTF ad-free, sign up for WTF+. Plus. Just click on the link in the episode description or go to WTFpod.com and click on WTF+. Plus. Okay? Okay. How about some blues? My style, kind. Mark style blues. How about that? How about it?